Sponsor Juniper Abstra's intent-based multi-vendor networking solution helps you build your data center network to a specific design, then make sure it stays within that spec. Deployment automation and continuous validation. Find out more at juniper.net slash packetpushers slash Abstra. Today on Heavy Networking, we're talking about mindfulness in the workplace. And more specifically, we're going to look at how mindfulness practice could help your IT career, both for workers and leaders, or folks thinking about moving into a leadership role. And okay, you might be thinking, hold on, if we're talking IT career, shouldn't this be about Python or BGP or which cloud cert you get? And yes, the technical side of the job's important, but you're also a human being. You have feelings and behaviors and a personality, and your coworkers and bosses also have feelings and behaviors and personalities. And all those things can interact in ways that can be positive or negative or even toxic. And mindfulness, which is about being aware of your senses and feelings in the moment, that could be a useful tool to help you navigate the human side of what can be a high-stress, high-stakes profession. Uh, So we're not going to tell you to break out your healing crystals or balance your chakras, but we are going to do a little poking around into our interior lives. Uh, So let's see how this goes. Our guest is Jennifer J.J. Manella. She's an IT practitioner, network architect, and the founder and principal advisor of Vizen Security. She also conducts workshops on mindfulness for InfoSec leaders. This episode was inspired by an article J.J. wrote for the Packet Pushers Human Infrastructure Newsletter. Uh, Ethan, you and I read it and we thought this would be interesting to talk more about, uh, and J.J. agreed to do the episode. So, JJ, welcome to the podcast. And just to start off with context, what is mindfulness? Is it meditation? Is it a breathing technique? Is it a state of mind? What are are we talking about when we talk about mindfulness? Mindfulness has a lot of different meanings. And I think this is where maybe things get off the rails early because there's not really consensus (laughs) on what that means. Um, There's different clinical definitions. There's one that that I like and I use um, in my workshops with, with teams, which is that, you know, mindfulness is paying attention to what's happening in the present moment in the mind, body, and external environment with an attitude of curiosity and kindness. And that's kind of long, but if you break it down, it's basically saying having, having that awareness and presence of mind, to understand what's going on inside of you and outside of you observing. And ultimately our goal is to be not judgmental about that, mm-hmm. just to sort of notice, which gives us that, that opportunity to maybe, adjust our behavior if that's what we're looking to do. Are we talking about um, managing stress, JJ, or is it more comprehensive than that? I, oh, it's, I think it's way more comprehensive than that. Certainly reduction of stress is a, re, a kind of a recurring theme in the different uh, research, um, clinical researches that are done around mindfulness and meditation, which is one modality that's often attached to mindfulness. Um, certainly stress, stress reduction is a big one, but it's one little tiny piece of the pie. And just for to sort of clarify then for the context we're talking about this conversation, mindfulness in the workplace, it's not that you should be sitting in your cubicle in the lotus position meditating. It's being aware of what's happening inside you and outside you and sort of observing it, keeping an eye on it without judgment to just that, that, that general, a higher level of awareness of what's going on within and without. Absolutely. It can be as basic as that. So what does that, why does that matter then for IT professionals? What, why should I care about that as part of my workplace life? One of the sets of statistics that I had cited when we wrote that article um, on packet pushers was if you look at it, some of the, the numbers, right. And, and, and in a second, like we'll start to connect the dots here, but if you look mm-hmm. at the numbers, these are a little bit alarming and I'm going to pull out just, just two or three that 47% of the time in the workplace, professionals attention is not where it should be. Their mind is wandering. They're thinking about something else besides what's in front of them right then. Mm -hmm. That's 
let me give you the next number, which is even a little bit crazier. So we're talking about basically 50% of the time, people aren't fully engaged in what's happening. Right. 70% of leaders report regularly being unable to be attentive during meetings, mm. um, meetings of, of all kinds. And only 2% uh, from this survey regularly make time to enhance their own personal productivity. And so if you, you know, again, you kind of break that down to start connecting the dots. If half of the time people aren't paying attention to what's going on, three quarters of leadership are not engaged during, you know, meetings, which is whether it's a one-on-one meeting or a group or a team meeting, these are the opportunities where we're interacting with other people. And so you can kind of just start to see the crap that falls, like like that snowballs out of this, which is, you know, the frustration as as an IT professional uh, or someone working in security and really anybody in any aspect of life, if you've just, you know, spent some time doing a brief or a debrief with somebody and two hours later or a day or two later, they're asking you the same thing. You've just, you know, spent hours putting together you know, data, maybe even a PowerPoint or a report for them. You've communicated to them regularly during meetings and they're still not getting it. And these numbers start to kind of explain why. And I think that's where this whole thing starts to fall apart. And you've got an erosion of trust and an erosion of relationship with that person. Um, and that absolutely infects the, uh, affects the performance of yourself and then your team. Yeah, I'm thinking about that statistic, 70% reported uh, they're regularly unable to be attentive in meetings. And given the amount of time that people are spending in meetings, not only is that just sort of productivity right out the window, but it's also, like you mentioned, that that lack of communication is not going on. Things aren't being communicated and that generates frustration, mistrust, other issues. And those numbers are were, were specific to, again, kind of this leadership workshop um, I do for tech, you know, technology leaders. There's a whole other set of data that talks about personal productivity, um, attention and focus. So I have, you know, a lot of, you know, colleagues and friends that have used different mindfulness modalities. And we'll kind of talk about what, what's in that toolkit, because it's like, you know, cereal or anything else in life. There's, there's not, there's different things people are going to like and not like, and you just got to f- try stuff and, and see what you like. But the numbers of people that are able to get off of, you know, medication and be able to, to focus, to sleep better at night, you know, all of these things directly impact that personal performance, not only in the workplace, but at home life too. Yeah, for sure. All right. So let's stick with the the notion of leadership for a second. Um, When we're talking about a good leader, what do you have a set of sort of traits that identify good leadership and, and then how would mindfulness sort of support those traits? I do. And I think everybody has their own. One of the fun things about workshops is, you know, kind of whiteboarding this with, with the participants and, you know, some of the examples um, from past workshops that people have thrown out are, you know, we, we start with what, what makes a good leader, what defines a good leader based on your, your feelings and your words as a participant. And some of the common themes are good listeners have integrity. They listen, they stay calm in crisis. Um, they're a good coach and mentor. They're somebody you can kind of go to and rely on. They're collaborative, open-minded, um, they're able to inspire a vision and have a vision. So a little bit more strategic thinking concepts through that, that they're, you know, genuine, which, you know, I kind of translate in, into the notion we have of authenticity. So being authentic mm. uh, instead of, you know, fake with the, the people in the workplace um, and being approachable. And, you know, kind of the flip side of that coin is 
what do what are what are some traits of bad leaders or what do good leaders tend to avoid doing? Um, things like, you know, blaming their team, um, micromanaging, hiding. I, I can hear the snickers. I know Ethan's giggling there, you know, <laughs> hiding <laughs> when something's going on. Does was there some personal uh, experience there, Ethan? Well, hiding when something goes wrong. There was one boss I had that, man, he'd be in your face right until something blew up. Then he would go in his office and close the door and lock it <laughs> so you could not get help from this human when you desperately needed it. And then not blaming uh, someone. I had another boss who would back the bus over us if you know some <laughs> outage happened or something like that and would not, oh, it's just, yes, that's why I'm snickering, JJ. Personal experience. Yeah. I have the scars. I have the scars. Yeah, I think most people do. Um, other things, you know, abusing power, being very political instead of uh, even killed with their decisions, um, being judgmental and dis dismissive uh, about other people's ideas, um, and being self-serving. So these are very common themes. And I think a lot of these, if we kind of if you start to pick apart where a relationship fell apart professionally, it's going to come back to somebody's ability or inability to do some of these things. And I think these traits that we can assign to leaders, we can also probably assign to coworkers and ourselves. You know, we've all had the experience of oh, this person I don't want to talk to because they're always going to be negative. Or if I try to go for them to help they're you know, I've, I've seen a lot of threads on Twitter lately where junior engineers are really frustrated with senior engineers who are like, you need to learn how to do that yourself, you know, and, and it's not just go figure it out and I'll help you. It's go make a bunch of mistakes and look like an idiot and perhaps lose your job and you deserve it because you don't know things kind of like that. It's, it's, so what can we do in terms of mindfulness to accentuate good traits? And I think there's probably also traits that mindfulness isn't just going to help with if that's the kind of person you are, but what, what can we do to accentuate the positives with mindfulness? From a leadership perspective, a lot of this, and I, I kind of mentally have this, this pyramid of relationship where we've got, um, I'm going to just put lead. If you imagine the, the pyramid right side up, right the the small top at the at the part uh, small part at the top, we've got leadership up there, which is built on some aspects of psychology and just the psychology of interacting with other humans, social psychology there, um, which is has a foundation in mindfulness, which then has a foundation in neuroscience. So everything is very science based, and we talk about a lot in business. We talk about um, EQ and, and EI. Um, so emotional intelligence is usually what it gets translated to. Um, and there's, I think that's kind of where people start to feel like there's this mushy, not uh -huh. tangible <laughs> thing, right? Uh -huh. um, but the reality is because we've got that sort of EI, EQ stick dipping through that pyramid, we are relying on science. The, the base of all that is neuroscience and how the brain processes information um, and so again, you know, part of, part of this, this content and workshop and, and sort of evangelism for me spun out of some other neuroscience based, um, kind of neuro hacking content and, and research and experiments, um, across, you know, personal and, and professional life. Uh -huh. Um, but this, this EI is really not the squishy nebulous thing that people think it is. Uh, it, it is something that is based in neuroscience and it is something that's attainable. Mindfulness dovetails into that and supports that in a huge way. So I guess I'm thinking of an example where, you know, if there's some outage or something we're working through and my, you know, initial emotional response is to get frustrated, get angry, and then to take that out on people around me, 
mindfulness would come in where I stop and say, okay, I understand, why am I feeling these feelings? How am I expressing these feelings to other people? Stop, take a breath, maybe rethink how I'm approaching it. Is that the idea? It is. And it's funny that you, you mentioned an outage because one of the analogies that I use when we're talking to technical audience is, so there's kind of, there's three pillars. I'm going to back up for one second here. Sure. There's kind of the three pillars about building resilience, uh, strengthening relationships and increasing performance. I think those are three tangible things. We have evidence. We can prove that specific, you know, mindfulness practices can enhance or facilitate those sort of three, three pillars of, of, of workplace behavior or performance. Okay. So a mindfulness practice uh, is looking for three outcomes, building resilience, strengthening relationships and improving performance. Yeah. That that's JJ's preference for <laughs> things to focus on. Um, there's, there's bodies of work that are very specific in other areas, but I think the resilience relationships and performance are, are three things that I think are very foundational to having a good professional experience in the world. Can you explain the the resilience component? Relationships and performance are pretty intuitive, but building resilience, I, I keep thinking of adding a second server or something, <laughs> but I don't think that's what we're getting at here. It, it kind of is. And that's what I was getting to with, with Drew's comment about an outage. And, you know, one of the analogies, if we, if we translate resilience into, you know, IT terms, we talk about having contingency planning. We talk, we talk about having, you know, continuity continuity of operations and business continuity. We talk about crisis communication, incident response, and and protecting infrastructures. And if we translate that to a human um, and neuroscience concepts or mindfulness concepts, these same things apply. How resilient are you? How how are you going to deal with stress? How are you going to deal with change, whether that's anticipated or not? Mm. How are you going to deal with negative things? And so a lot of the indicators in these research studies about um, stress. And again, we talked, I think about that at the beginning, a lot of this research is the per- the perception of stress. And then by extension, burnout in, in a lot of IT mm-hmm. uh, is in a great part mitigated by different mindfulness practices. And so this, you know, I kind of, I really like Jason Momoa. I think he's so nice to look at. So if we kind of just, if you, it, I think it's hard to, to sort of visualize neuroscience and mindfulness. But if we take this and you say, okay, if you've got somebody that's the size of Jason Momoa, and then you've got, I don't know, a scrappy little chihuahua <laughs> snipping at his, at his ankles or a person that comes up and is going to pick a fight with them. You've got somebody who's built those muscles, right? He's, he's strong he's skilled, he's able to deal with those things physically. If you kind of translate that, it's really the same thing. When we're talking about, you know, going to the gym or building mindfulness, we're talking about exercising a a muscle and a habit to build something. Everything related to resilience is just how heavy is your is your shield around you to deal with anything that comes at you. Because when your resilience is down, your immune system is down from a health perspective, little things set you off, you become emotional. Mm-hmm. And then there's this other sort of downhill, then snowball of, of crap that accumulates because when we get emotional, we don't make good decisions. That's proven in a lot of different ways. Mm-hmm. We don't r- respond. We're reacting. Uh, and it's not thoughtful. So this resilience is how, how can we bolster ourselves and build ourselves and I hate to say emotionally, so I'm just going to say from a neuroscience standpoint, <laughs> mentally, 
Well, JJ, one of the ways I've dealt with resilience and, and tell me if I'm on the right track here is I've just taken on a mantra of doing less. That is when things are going well and I don't have a lot of extra stresses, if I have an extra hour in my day that wasn't scheduled for something, I feel like I have to fill it in. And so I take on a new project, I get ambitious and do something. Then a week later, uh, I no longer have that free hour in my schedule because I filled it in with the thing. Something else comes in and all of a sudden I don't have enough resources available to handle that extra thing that's come up that I have to deal with and I and I lose it. And so one of the building resilience techniques I've taken on uh, pretty recently is just do less and stop feeling guilty because there was a free hour in my schedule. Is that uh, at all related to where we're going here? It absolutely is. that, uh, And that's a great example. I think we all probably suffer from that, uh, overextending ourselves a little bit. So yeah, when you're talking about, and that's that, that protection, right? So we talked about kind of infrastructure protection or these controls you put in place to, to block or to protect something from this negative thing. In your case, what you're saying is you're, you're building this little bit of a wall for yourself to give yourself that kind of space um, to not necessarily feel like you need to fill it and then and then deal with the stress that that comes on with that. Well, um, le leaving room for the unexpected thing, because there's one thing I've learned is that I can expect the unexpected things. There's always going to be things coming up. So leaving room or, or it's like a buffer in a switch. You're going to get that burst every now and again, and you got to have a buffer to be able to handle it. It is. And that's why I think there's some great idea analogies here. And one of the things I, I talk a lot about for myself personally, I talk a lot about not just time space, but also mental space. Right. It, it's proven again, not necessarily just in mindfulness um, research, but in business research and creativity of, you know, artists and musicians and people that are, that are creating creative content that, having that sort of mental space to flex and to be creative is required. We've proven this um, in different business, just business strategy research outside of mindfulness, that when we give people that space, some of the parts of that is greater than the, than the whole really. And they're able to think in a different way. So from, again, from a neuroscience perspective, your brain, your, your brain actually functions differently when you're task oriented to getting something done Versus when you're, I'm going to go ahead and say this, a little bit bored and, mm -hmm. and your mind's kind of reaching out to figure out new stuff. So the, the brain actually functions differently and we solve problems differently when our brain is working those different ways. And so there's a lot of validity here based in neuroscience of problem solving, strategic thinking, um, you know, stepping outside of the problem for a little bit, focusing on something else and building that mental space. And we also, you know, my, my last team, we talked a lot about, um, I think somebody called it spoons. Um, I only have so many mental spoons today. Um, somebody else would call it uh, buckets. Um, and so if, if they were asked to do, um, and this particular person, um, managed to juggle a lot of things, uh, very well all at once, but you got, you get to a point where it's like, okay, I'm, I'm tasked with doing this thing and I'm tasked with doing this thing. Right. And it's not just linear tasks that are related to the project. It might be completely different areas. So, you know, in, in my prior roles, I've been responsible for sales and marketing and communication, as well as leading professional services and delivering. And so you start to get these little buckets of thought where the you're focusing on dropping stuff into this bucket. You got to drop stuff into that bucket and you get too many buckets. So that, again, that sort of, one of those resilience aspects is understanding that you have that limit and everybody's going to be different. 
and then figuring out how to work within those parameters and streamline that and put up some protections and some walls or processes for yourself to give you that space. So let's maybe try to make this a little bit more concrete. Let's say I'm, I've got my regular amount of work and I'm going along and then some emergency crops up that has to be dealt with immediately. And uh, there's a lot of pressure involved. There's a lot of uh, stakeholders looking over my shoulder and I can feel that pressure starting to build and I can feel my own emotional response starting to spin up, anger, frustration, despair, whatever it is. How do I use mindfulness to either sort of short circuit that or take me into a different headspace? Like how do do I build that resilience? Yeah, the mindfulness practices, in my opinion, there are definitely things that can be implemented at that moment. The major benefit, though, is going to be if you've done the work ahead of time. Again, it's kind of just like going to the gym. Yep. If you're suddenly going to go, you know, deadlift three or 400 pounds, that's easier if you've been working up to that. (laughs) And you may not be able to walk in the gym one day and just do that if you haven't tried to do it or worked up to that before. So it's, it's sort of the same thing. Now there's, there's, there's very specific tools to use for, you know, calming down and getting your, your nervous system and your emotional, your amygdala under control so that you can respond instead of react to something in something like a crisis or emergent, you know, kind of immediate incident that's coming up. But I think the, the bigger goal or the longer term goal would be you know, some of the feelings you described are, you know, that stress. And of course, there's always going to be stress if there's an, a, a timeline and a clock ticking and a negative incident happening. Yep. Um, but you you said anger and frustration. And so I would kind of roll back that a little bit and peel it and say what, you know, knowing that stuff happens in the world, what you chose anger and frustration, what was the, what part of this incident that's happening led you to anger and frustration? Probably working with me, but. uh. (laughs) (laughs) It could be a million things. It could be, you know, this problem was kicked off by some technical debt that I wasn't responsible for when it was implemented, but now is in my lap. Or I had suggested a particular uh, choice be made and for whatever reason it wasn't made and now the consequences are coming back home on me, that kind of thing. Okay. So if you, if you take those pieces of things, I would deconstruct that into some other stuff that falls maybe under um, more of the relationship and performance side, which is, you know, developing well, good communication and trust. So hopefully you, you don't get to the point where decisions were made that you weren't aware of or, or people that, you know, whether it's you or somebody else that needs to be involved in a project that the right people are involved in that project and that kind of rolls back to those leadership skills of communication and building trust. And then a big one, I think, in technology is this notion of, in, in Buddhism, we call it um, like a detachment. Uh-huh. It's the separation of being attached to a thought or an outcome. And so the other thing that you said is maybe you suggested something and that wasn't the route that they went. They went a different route. Now it's all kind of gone to crap. So, you know, rolling earlier from that in the timeline, there would have been opportunities with some of these practices in a team to avoid those circumstances. Um, And then some of it is, I think, just learning that, and I I mean, I've struggled with this for so many years. So it's, you know, the (laughs) attachment thing is close to my heart because there's some things I've done so many times that I I know I know the best way to do it. And we just need to do it that way. Because why, (laughs) why go waste time doing it the wrong way again? And so to, you know, to get out of that mode of thinking and go, okay, 
there's always other ways to solve problems. And at some point, there's going to be a better way to solve the problem, or at least a different way that's equally good. And sometimes it's about letting somebody else take that ownership or take that lead and building their ability and confidence. And sometimes it's about letting them make the not best decision and, and not hanging them out to dry and blaming them, but letting them make that decision if they're if they're really stuck on doing that, and, and especially a newer professional, and guiding them through maybe resolving the outcome of that if it's not if it's not positive right so they made a decision it was bad it wasn't necessarily the best thing to do coaching them back out of that decision um, but being supportive not not well I told you so you know because that's not a healthy relationship thing either yeah just knowing my own personality missing out on that I told you so opportunity would be hard to do that would be very much (laughs) a very buddhist act of me to to let that go yeah it but but the, that's why I'm saying these are habits, you know, and it's just like if somebody decides to, um, you know, s- change their diet and eat more healthy or they decide to start exercising or stop smoking or whatever, it's about changing habits. Mindfulness is about changing habits. But, you know, the, the person or people have to want to do that. You can't force it on somebody. Of course. And the, the first step is really noticing um, and that goes back to that definition of mindfulness about noticing, you know, what's going on because you're not going to change the behavior. If you, A, haven't already decided that it's not productive or positive behavior. So you have to first say, I'm doing this thing and it's, it's not the best way to do it. It's, it's a negative habit I want to break. Right. And then that's kind of step one. That's a big step though, is identifying that behavior in yourself or that habit and then the next thing is catching yourself when you're doing it. And that's the exercise of catching yourself when you're doing it is the win. Mm-hmm. So I think I'm going to make a general mindfulness and meditation statement here because I think this is a great, a great way to look at it. So many of my friends say, oh, you know, JJ, I love that you do this stuff. I could never do meditation. My mind just goes all over the place. Well, the exercise of meditation is not about clearing your mind. It's, it's not, the goal isn't sit there and have nothing going on in your head. The goal, like walking into the gym and picking up a weight is the exercise of letting your mind go somewhere that you didn't want it to in that exercise and pulling it back. Uh If you're not actually doing that, you're not, you're not working that muscle. You're not exercising that skill set. And so a lot of the meditation practices, and I'm saying meditation specifically, because this is one subset of mindfulness practice. Um, there's all kinds of meditation. There's not necessarily just, you know, sitting in Lotus or sitting in a chair, or, you know, focusing on your breath. That is one of them. Um, but this idea that you sit there and nothing goes through your head, that's not a real practice. I mean, you can, if you like that and that's fun for you, that's fine, but that's not a, that's not a, that's not our goal of meditation. And, and so it's this, let the mind do this, notice it's doing it, and then redirect it where you want to. That's the exercise. Uh-huh. That's the end goal. Uh-huh. And it's the same thing with all of these other, you know, behaviors we're trying to change. It's the action that we're doing each day of, I want to change this behavior. Oh my gosh, I just did that thing again and catching it. And that's huge. 
I interrupt this podcast conversation and possibly myself to explain who the heck sponsor Appstra is. In a nutshell, multi-vendor network automation plus continuous validation. And I stress multi-vendor because if you've been paying attention to acquisition news, you know that Appstra was bought by Juniper a while back. So you might be thinking you don't care about Appstra unless you're a Juniper shop. And that is just not true. Appstra can handle data center network automation across a spectrum of vendors. So what do we mean by data center automation anyway? We mean that you design the DC network to meet some business requirements you have, and you do that within the Appstra interface, and let's say it's leaf spine with eVPN. Appstra's got access to the network devices themselves, and it takes your intent to create that leaf spine physical network with an eVPN overlay and configures it for you. I mean, Appstra can't plug the cables in for you, right? You still have to do that bit. But Appstra can tell you when the cabling is out of whack, whether that's during the day zero build-out phase or the day two, hey, it looks like an optic failed phase. And that's sort of the point here. Cabling, routing relationships, device and link addressing, inter-switch links, VLANs, VTEPs, mappings, tons of these things. So many that you don't want to have to do that configuration yourself. It seems fun until you're actually building it, and then you realize it's totally not fun. You want software to stand up the data center fabric for you. Software's not going to fat finger an address. Software's not going to forget to update BGP policy. Software? Software loves you. (laughs) Okay, not all software loves you, but Appstra software does, so much so that it not only helps get that fabric built, but keeps it built the way you intended. Something goes out of spec, Aptra will enforce your intent, which should help you reduce security vulnerabilities, by the way, and alert you to the bits that need a human's attention. Aptra claims up to 80% improvements in operational efficiency, 70% improvements in mean time to resolution, and 90% improvements in time to deliver, and that is a lot of love. Find out more at juniper.net slash packetpushers slash abstra. If you're a data center network engineer, this is worth your investigation. Once more, that's juniper.net slash packetpushers slash abstra. And if you talk to your Juniper rep about abstra, make sure to tell them you heard about them on Packet Pushers. Juniper.net slash packetpushers slash abstra. And now back to the podcast. So uh, let's maybe then go back and and you talked about needing to to do some groundwork before you can get to the point where in a stressful situation you can sort of have that awareness of what's happening inside you and around you. So what what kinds of things should I should folks be thinking about if they think okay I want to sort of start incorporating mindfulness? What what are exercises or groundwork that I need to lay? I think there's two there's two different ways I can answer this. So the first thing is is that I already mentioned there's a lot of different tools and things to do. Um, And I'll talk about some of those. I guess the result of each of these or each group of these is a little bit different. Like, so it's sort of like a prescription for whatever you're working on. Mm -hmm. Um, So there are some things that are going to just kind of go across the board, reduce stress, make you feel more grounded, make you have a little bit more energy, um, make you feel a little bit more connected. But then there are specific things kind of air quote prescribed for specific habit changes, which, you know, like some for resilience, some for building relationships, some for performance. And so I'll kind of speak to speak to maybe these exercises in the terms of what the goals are. Sure. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's great. Is one of the exercises taking the printer take into a field and smashing it to bits like they did in that movie? That was the first thing that came to my mind. JJ's not going here. I'm going to guess. (laughs) I think sometimes there's absolutely opportunity for some healthy destruction. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) I 
I had a client once that had their, they had, they traveled a lot and they had their own airstrip uh, and airplane. And um, the team I was working with got, uh, they inherited a subset of infrastructure, including some switches that nobody had any admin access into. And it, it was locked down pretty hard. It's probably one of the only less than less than a half dozen of, of routers I haven't been able to get into when I need to. <laughs> and um, we basically had to push packets through it. Aha, uh-huh. packet pushers, push packets through <laughs> it. Uh, didn't, didn't do that intentionally, but we had to push packets through it and kind of see where they came out to reverse engineer the routing in it. That was not fun. And so we kind of collectively decided that we were going to take the airplane up um, and drop said switch uh, on, onto a field. Um, oh, wow. Yeah, we got pretty far down that plan and, and then the uh, leadership nixed that one. <laughs> yes, you can physically destroy things sometimes. Um, so I'll start with resilience. And so when I've asked workshop attendees, I've told you a few examples of resilience. And when I've asked them, what do you consider personal resilience or professional resilience? Things like being able to adapt to change. And again, that could be planned change or not planned change and planned uh-huh. change. That's a that's a whole other conversation. Maybe there's a whole other suite of content I have around managing through change, which is interesting. But most people are very change averse. Um, and so building that, like not only is change okay, it's good and it's healthy and it's opportunity for growth and, and learning and doing new things. Agility, humor, avoiding burnout. That's something we've, dealt with, especially in the information security community for a long time, um, being able to see, you know, beyond what's just in front of you immediately and having kind of this bigger field of vision for strategic thinking um, and things like not taking um, feedback uh, negative, negatively or personally. <laughs> so somebody gives you, right. you know, some, some type of feedback and, and whether they intended it to be negative or not, to, to be able to just take that and go, okay, yeah, I need to work on that. Um, and things like delegation. So those are sort of the resilience and, and to make that a little bit more concrete, that kind of ties back to that uh, original statement of, of mindfulness and um, cultivating non-judgmental awareness. And again, I think this is, is much easier said than done as, as many of these things are, but to you know, to see something and not have that knee jerk reaction of, of, well, of good or bad. Right. Um, and that ties also into attachment. So one of the very common themes in, in mindfulness, and, it, and I think this is rooted um, in Buddhism in many ways, is that nothing in the world is inherently good or bad. Nothing. The, the, the birth of something, the death of something, the change of something, the existence of something, everything that happens is neutral. It's definition of good or bad is our personal experience or reaction or response to that. Um, you know, I, I would never eat Lucky Charm cereal because I hate sugar and I hate marshmallows. I bet it's somebody's favorite cereal. So this notion of nothing is inherently good or bad is a great place to start with resilience. And that kind of ties into that idea of non-attachment, um, self-awareness, um, self-control or regulation of your behavior and um, emotions uh, plays a big a, a big goal of resilience, um, and then making time, self care, and, and empathy for yourself and for other people. And so, in that kind of resilience toolbox, and and some of these stretch and are applicable across the board here. But mm-hmm. there's um, 
One of the ones I like to do in the workshops is a body scan, which is a very, so this ties into self-awareness. Again, rooted in science, it's pretty interesting that a lot of our emotions, we don't notice them until they manifest physically. And most people, if you ask them, they can tell you when you're stressed, where do you hold it? Like physically, where do you hold it? Yeah. And, you know, for me, it used to be my jaw for a long time. It, it, I could just feel my, my jaw completely tighten and clamp up when I was uh, kind of anxious about something or agitated. Upper back and shoulders for me. Upper, that's yeah, that's upper the back part that I have to manually relax if I'm yes. getting wound up. Yeah. yeah. Andrew, what about you? Do you know, do you know where you usually carry that? Uh, shoulders and also in my, like I, I tend to bite my lip. Okay. So from a self-awareness standpoint, the body skin is really just sitting there um, taking its you know, the short ones are like two and three minutes and just starting at the, at the top and going down or starting at the bottom and going up and just paying attention. Does my head feel tight? Um, A lot of times I get tightness right in the back, kind of where my occiput is, you know, where the the spine attaches to the head. Yeah. um, If I'm going to get a migraine, your shoulders, you know, you then think about your shoulders or are they tight? Am I hunched? Is it, how does that feel? Right. And then you just kind of move down even into your hands and your arms through your hips, your legs, and then your, you know, your feet are hopefully grounded on the floor. If you're sitting in a chair, that simple exercise can usually tell you a lot. And I know it probably sounds, sounds silly, but this is one of those exercises we do that it's, you know, people immediately are like, oh, now, because I stopped to think about it. Now I realize my shoulders are tight. Now I realize my back is tight. Now I realize X, Y, or Z. And it's a good starting point for, okay, obviously there's opportunity for, you know, if you've been cramped in a plane seat for eight, six hours, uh, some of that's physical, but a lot of times that's coming from something, you know, mental or emotional that's, that's down in there. For sure. Yeah, I can see that. Okay. So that's an individual sort of a standalone tool I can use when I feel like I'm in a situation where things might be, my state, my mental state might be moving into a place I, I'm not, I don't want it to go the body scan sort of head to toe, where am I holding my stress and why? Yeah. I like that one um, because it's very, it's easy. Anybody can do it anytime. There are others that I think a lot of people need to kind of work their way into because they might be adverse to to doing it at first. Um, There's self-compassion meditations and one called loving kindness or meditation, which has to do with kind of cultivating this positive feeling for other people um, and and sending that out, which again, sounds a little squishy and nebulous, but there's a lot of research <laughs> behind this. Um, one of my colleagues, Mike, Mike Rothman, when, when he and I started doing the neurohacking stuff at RSA, this was one of his favorite tools um, at that time. And it's pretty interesting because what you start what you start getting to is I think in one of the other packet uh, pusher articles I wrote for you guys, we, I talked about, you know, when people are driving and they're just annoying the ever living crap out of me, I pretend like they have something going on. Like they have a cake in the car and they can't move quickly because they'll mess up this giant birthday cake for their six-year-old child that they just had made. And that's kind of like the, the way that this loving kindness for me manifests into giving other people the benefit of the doubt and not just staying angry at them the whole time. Got it. You're trying to ascribe more of a positive intention to why they're driving like a moron. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. And, you know, for me, that's just a little bit of a hack to not be judgmental about it and to not be angry about it. 
you know, ultimately it would be nice if I could just be driving and it didn't bother me, but it, I'm human. It does bother me. And that's my, my kind of coping mechanism. (laughs) That's Um, a good one. We could all use more calm driving. JJ, it occurs to me that a lot of this mindfulness is just coming from your own personal experience. Are you, are you a stressed wound up person, JJ, that gets (laughs) agitated easily and needed to uh, bring a lot of this into your own experience? You know, okay. My, a lot of the examples I use are just, I don't, necessarily want to out other, other people. (laughs) Um, and so, you know, it's fine, you know, if I'm self-deprecating and and sharing my stupid little quirks, I don't, I don't feel bad about that. Um, I don't want anybody else to ever feel, I don't want to say attacked, but, you know, picked on in any way. Uh, so I I like to to pick on myself uh, or other people anonymously, but I came into mindfulness, I guess, a long time ago in my twenties when I had some health issues. Um, I was working two jobs and not sleeping and, and living on a Fedra for a long time, which d- didn't do great things uh, for my biological systems. Mm. <laughs> and they tried to put me on a bunch of prescriptions. I'm, I'm all for prescription drugs when, when they're needed. Uh, I just think that 80% of the time they're not needed. Um, and there, there's other ways we can kind of deal with things. And so ultimately, long story short, I found my way as a 20, I don't know, three-year-old in, into a class of uh, tai Chi, uh-huh. um, with, you know, like community center with all the 16, 70 year olds. Um, and I thought, I don't know what I'm doing, but this seems like the right thing to do. That's a movement exercise it kind of followed on, ended up doing Qigong, which was uh-huh. a more of a mind meditation, mindfulness exercise that had its own path, which then sort of intersected with, I went from being an individual contributor um, and a network architect to managing a team. And I sucked so horribly at it that I didn't want to go to work and just sitting down and having an honest conversation, you know, almost in tears one day with that team and saying, look, I, I hate being here. And if I'm technically your air quote boss, you must hate being here too. So we've, we got to fix this. How do we, how do we fix this? And just, you know, being very authentic with that and being ready to take that feedback and make some adjustments and, and do the hard work. And it took years and it took outside help to get to the point. So a lot of kind of organizational health, business leadership um, training, um, which to me in my mind just intersected with this beautifully. And then of course, later more research started coming out around this. Google had their uh, Google's search inside yourself leadership um, an entire institute around these types of trainings um, that are all me- meant for businesses and professionals and their workshops. And then there's been, you know, just a, a slew of of things after that. But for me, this, this just kind of naturally intersected personally and professionally. How along this journey did you deal with that, the self-affirmation component? Because we, we, you mentioned it and then we started talking about the relationship with other people, but the self-affirmation part, I mean, I'm reminded of the old Saturday Night Live skit, I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and gosh darn it, people <laughs> like me, you know, that whole thing, which was meant to be tongue-in-cheek and funny and all that. But then you look at the personality of people that are in our industry, especially if they want to be high achievers. We're driven by this uh, feeling of, um, oh, you call it imposter syndrome if you want, or I'm, I'm not good enough, actually, and I've got to keep pushing, pushing, pushing to become good enough. Um, self-affirmation seems to be uh, certainly identified as a weak part in, in myself. Um, how, how did you deal with that component? 
I avoided that by focusing my my goals or my metrics for success um, on on other people and outcomes. Now, I'm a firm believer in a lot of the self affirmation, and like I mentioned in a minute ago, in that tool, in that first toolkit out of the three, there are specific meditation practices for that. Now, that outcome of that sort of self confidence, and actually a lot a lot of the research around specifically leadership and mindfulness, there's really interesting solid data around the confidence, the self-confidence built in a leader through these practices, which is not necessarily that self-affirmation or self kind of compassion um, practice, but all of these other things, because what you're doing is giving yourself that space and time. You're thinking more clearly about the decisions you're making. You're responding instead of reacting you're practicing that non-attachment. It lets you really, you know, I think that we, most of us kind of walk through the world with a little bit of, especially in work, a little bit of blinders on. We're so focused on this little narrow thing. And a lot of these practices just really broaden that field of view. You see more, you think more, you're more creative. You feel more confident in you, yourself, your relationships, your team, and I think once you've done that, that helps kind of reaffirm that you are moving in the right direction and you are making the right decisions. Um, again, for me, I was so focused on, you know, I need to get better business outcomes and I need to make this team happy and successful that I already knew I was doing a crappy job. <laughs> so it, <laughs> I, I knew I was doing a bad job. Um, at that. And I didn't have the skill set. And, and so I, but I felt like just by being okay and, and acknowledging that and, and being very open about it, and even still now being open about it, I sucked at it. And, and that commitment to myself and to my team to do better and to, mm. I mean, I read so many books and I went to so many workshops and had trainings. It, it's not about telling yourself how awesome you are. It's about making the changes you know you need to make and developing confidence as those changes become evident. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, there, there are definitely, like I said, values in some of that self-affirmation that, you know, different people have had different life experiences, you know, especially when, when they're younger and, you know, obviously full disclosure, I am not in any way a doctor or a psychological professional. Um, so one thing I think that might make sense to mention here is that there are cases with, with mental health and past traumas, especially childhood traumas, that there are certain practices and mindfulness um, that are not appropriate for certain people at certain stages. Mm. You know, we, we are, we're here sharing um, kind of tools that work for a lot of people. There are, there are cases where, you know, people have, have had things that have happened in their past that are hugely impactful and they need a qualified guide right. to navigate through that, to get to a safe place to then kind of, that's, you know, that's a decision you, you make with your, um, with your counselor or your therapist about when you feel comfortable moving forward. Most of these, I, I think are, you know, pretty safe for everybody, but that's worth mentioning. I'm glad you mentioned that. I want to say, you know, in general, it sounds like if I'm interested in trying to cultivate mindfulness in my work, in my life, it is a practice that word has come up, which means it's something you sort of have to do regularly over and over uh, so this isn't like a quick fix. So it sounds like I would need to kind of carve out some time in my life to begin meditating or cultivating mindfulness. Is that, does that seem fair? It does. And 
you know, there's two ways to go about it. There's definitely that dedicated practice where, you know, maybe you're, you're sitting and you're doing a body scan or you're journaling or you're, you know, doing a meditation. There's lots of ways to do meditation, but it can also be kind of more of this active integrated into life practice, which is, again, you have to be aware of the behavior you want to change and then catch yourself when you're doing it. So it can be as simple as, I don't know, let's pick an example. As simple as you realize that you are constantly, immediately negatively reacting to a certain person or to maybe a certain kind of project that's going on. Uh And so then it's, okay, well, let's kind of focus in on that. And so it, it could be as simple as just stopping before you have a knee jerk reaction. And so some maybe more tangible examples are, have you ever gotten an email um, that really just, (laughs) really just grinds your gears and tweaks you and you're just, (laughs) and you can't wait to answer that or say something about it. Email is a great example because I think we communicate a lot in messaging and email now that could also be an in-person interaction, but just to pause, you know, we teach kids all the time to pause, you know, before they click on things or pause before they, respond or, or, or react. And that's a really great skill set. It's something that's so easy to, to practice. We can do it with our kids. We can do it when we're in the store at the grocery line. We can do it when we're driving. We can do it with our colleagues. It's just that getting a little bit of self-control and not as, as we've always called it, eating the marshmallow because there's studies there's a, there's a study from many, well, a few decades ago at this point about, you know, children's the, the relationship of their self-control to their success later in life and the self-control research was, was done with marshmallows. So, you know, they, they put a marshmallow in front of the child and then tell them, okay, if you don't eat it and I come back, you get another marshmallow and then you have two marshmallows that you can have later instead of one you can have right now. So that kind of instant gratification, delayed gratification. Mm-hmm. Um, and so one of the big, I think, relationship things is that self-control and responding instead of reacting and pausing sometimes. And that's just one example of a way to incorporate a mindfulness practice into your daily activities without carving out separate time. And ultimately that's going to strengthen your relationship with the the people that are on the other end of the email you were going to send. Right. Or right in front of you or in that meeting or whatever. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. So are there any resources, the books, videos, apps that you would recommend to someone who's curious about this and maybe just wanting to get some more information or wanting to start somewhere? Yeah, there's a ton. Um, there's so many. And, and again, I would just encourage anybody, I'll list off a few things. Um, so Google's search inside yourself book is, is awesome. I loved that. There are several, if you're specifically interested in, you know, business, the application of mindfulness for leadership and business, there are several books, um, specific to that. There's a mindfulness-based leadership institute. So several leaders there, there's some really interesting stories from companies like General Mills and, and some other kind of large, large names like that that have nothing to do with IT that are implementing these, these tools for, for their teams. Um, there's apps. I like Meditation Timer. It's free. Um, there's also Mindspace. It's very popular. There are all kinds of like short little getting started with meditation books. There's, there's so many resources. And the reason that I hesitate and usually avoid offering a list um, or, or recommending some specific ones is that different 
things really resonate with different people. Sure. And so, you know, my, my list of things I really enjoyed, for example, when I was doing the neurohacking content with Mike Rothman were completely different than his. I got excited with his list. I went and picked up a couple of books and read them. And none of the ones I selected of his list resonated with me at all. It was just like, <laughs> eh, it was a waste of time. And so I think it's really a matter of just kind of, you, you need to just take a little bit of time to do a little bit of, you know, we're all really good at researching and Googling. Yes. I was going to say, put and, that Google food to work. Know, yeah. There's a ton of tools, everything from sitting meditation to walking meditation to just mindful eating, which is just, you know, when you're eating something, pay attention to what you're eating and the flavors and enjoy it. When you're, when you're outside walking, you know, don't be on your phone or listening to an audiobook. Just kind of take that time to look around you, you know, check out the wildlife and nature, or if you're, you know, in a city, the, the cars and what's going on. Um, these are all just little, little things that kind of play back into that original definition of noticing and awareness. And, you know, one of the things that's easy to do at work is a minute to arrive, which is just when you're starting a meeting, take literally 60 seconds. And just give everybody that moment to shift gears mentally, move off mentally from what they were doing before, <laughs> get into the room physically, get into the room mentally and get ready to be engaged in that conversation. It's hugely impactful. And it's, it's a 30 to 60 second exercise. Yeah. Oh, and more important in the Zoom world too. Uh, I mean, boy, because it's so easy to be on a Zoom and be distracted by whatever you were doing, especially if the meeting doesn't require your constant input. Absolutely. Yeah, sure. Yep. So that, that's really my advice. Everybody is just kind of like check stuff out and see what resonates with you because what, what I think is cool and I might want to share with you, you might just go, I know that is not for me. So, you know, do your own poking, find some stuff, just try a few different things and, and don't, you know, don't give up if you've tried two things and neither of those work. All right. Well, that does wrap up our time. JJ, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. I thought this was a really interesting discussion. I hope folks got something out of it. Um, if people are interested in learning more from you, following you, are you social? Are you online? Do you have a website or a book or anything to plug? I do. Uh, and thanks, guys. And thanks, everybody, for listening. I think the best place to find me, I'm pretty easy to find online. I am at JJX on Twitter. Um, and I am reinvigorating the Security Uncorked blog. So that's just security uncorked like you would uncork a wine bottle.com. Um, and that's going to have a, a blend of uh, both technical content and then some of this mindfulness based stuff as well. All right. That's at JJX on Twitter and security uncorked. We'll have those links and others in the show notes that accompany this podcast. Thanks again, JJ, for being here. Thank you for listening. Uh, if you've enjoyed this podcast and want more, we've got plenty more at uh, packetpushers.net along with our community blog. You can also follow us on Twitter at Packet Pushers. Find us on LinkedIn, uh, rate us on iTunes and follow us on Spotify. And last but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough.